Welcome to Out of the Frame Conversations about Photography. I am Pia Johnson and I'm your host. I'd like to begin by thanking everyone who listened to our first season. It was wonderful to have you and I hope you continue to enjoy the podcast. And welcome to any new listeners to our first episode for season two. If you like what you hear, please make sure you share or review us on whichever platform you listen to your podcasts. This season, I'll be speaking to an exciting lineup of local and international photographers. To begin, this is a special episode featuring photographers from the Photo 2024 Festival currently on in Nam, Melbourne, about photography as activism. I'll be speaking to three internationally-based photographers, Isadora Romero, Jemima Wyman and Carmen Wynant. Please note that this episode is recommended for a mature audience that are over 18 and that it contains discussion about sensitive topics that may be upsetting or not suitable for all audiences. These include topics about war, protest, birth, abortion and domestic violence. This episode has been recorded on the unceded lands of the Jar Jar Wurrung people of the Eastern Kulin Nation and I pay my respects to the traditional owners of the land and acknowledge Elders past and present. It always was and always will be Aboriginal land. My first guest today is Isadora Romero. Isadora is a freelance Ecuadorian visual storyteller based in Quito. Her work is a frontier between documentary and fine art photography, focusing on social justice, gender and environmental issues. Among them, the human relationship with agriculture and the preservation of agrobiodiversity in Latin America. Her work is also an exploration of the physical and digital materiality of the image and its discursive function. She is a co-founder of Ruda Collective of Latin American women photographers. She's exhibited her work in solo shows in Ecuador and group exhibitions in other countries on several continents. She was invited to INAE's Artistic Residency. Among her main awards, she is the winner of the Discovery Award of Les Recontres de la Photographie of Arles, France, 2023, winner of the Global and Regional Open Format Award of World Press Photo 2022, winner of the Poi Latam in the Multimedia Category in 2023, and second place in Environment in 2021, as well as being the winner of the Marilyn Stafford Award in 2021. She was selected for the Prince Claus Fund Artistic and Cultural Responses to Climate Change Grant in 2022 and selected for the Magnum Foundation Photography and Social Justice Fellowship in 2021 and as well as the World Press Photo Dupe Swart Masterclass in 2020. She is the co-author of the photo book 7.8. She is also an educator and member of Women Photograph, Photographus Equatorianus, Photo Feminas and Diversify Photo. Thanks, Isadora, for coming and joining me today. I thought maybe to begin that we could uh, talk a little bit about how you started telling visual stories and what and how that kind of led to you being a photographer today. Yeah, well, I started wanting to make movies first. 
I don't know, my, my parents are communicators, so I was always around watching movies that my friends weren't watching, so I was very uh, familiar with that, and also talking a lot about what we can see in our surroundings with my father. So I think that started there, and then I studied video making, and then I started a short course of about photography, and I find that that was the language I, I really like most. I feel most comfortable there. Also, it was not a lot of equipment needed, not a lot of money needed. Uh, it was just me and the camera and, and the adventure in front. So then I went to Buenos Aires to study and I was experimenting with everything there, just having the time to really get to know the medium and what on its possibilities. And then when I returned to my country, to Ecuador, I started to, because the, the stories that I liked were uh, almost always fiction. But when I came home again, I realized that there were so many stories that were real stories, that were untold stories, or that there weren't many perspectives about important issues. So I start just wanting to tell the stories that I was interested in that weren't told before or weren't told in a specific approach before. So yeah. Yeah, that's really beautiful. I read an interview that you did a little while ago that you describe photography as a direct means of communication with honesty and fear. And I really love that quote. I think it's really beautiful, but I think it really speaks to what you're saying about telling those untold stories and finding those stories. And, you know, I guess through photography and film and, and various ways of different types of storytelling, you can visualize things through different perspectives and through the image. Can you speak a little bit more about that quote and whether or not that sentiment still something that rings true for you? Yeah, for me it is true. I don't know if I change a little bit my perspective. <laughs> I find myself always... Um, I, I mean, I think now I feel that that honesty and fear comes also from a place that I can understand the power that photography has and also the power of the gaze and the place in which you are standing for telling that story. So that comes with a lot of responsibility, a lot of risk, and of course you can always feel the honesty behind that sort of way of telling stories. So for me, it's very important that I really stay true to who I am and true to myself to tell the stories because I have understood also that there are some stories that are non, not mine to tell. Mm. And that is something that I, I, I am appreciating even more with the years, yes. So do you feel like for those stories, you're like a custodian to those stories? You know, like you have to hold them and be careful with them when you're putting them out into the world. Yes, yes, because there has been so many extraction and, you know, harm done 
from extracting stories that don't belong or decontextualizing stories or misinterpret stories that has mm. been very harmful for many communities. In my country, that has been a lot. <laughs> so now yeah. for me, I am very careful of what I can share with uh, the communities that I collaborate and what I can share to the global audience or wider audience. Uh, because there's no, you, you don't have to tell everything. And there are things that, yes, are very, I don't know, very deep to a community that is special for them and they want to keep it that way. So that is very important that you understand that sense and you respect that as well. Yeah, I mean, it's a really strong ethical position that you have to take and make sure that everyone involved is on board. Yeah, wow. So could you tell us a little bit about the project that you're bringing to Photo 2024 this year? Yes, it is called Blood is a Seed. It's a chapter of a wider project that I have been working for the last five years that is about the preservation of agrobiodiversity in Latin America. Uh, I have worked in many countries with many communities that are resisting this problem because we have already lost 75% of the food we used to eat, of the varieties wow. and seeds that we used to eat. So it's a very global problem. So I am interested in communities that are somehow fighting this erosion and, and preserving. I am working a lot with uh, seed guardians. And while I was working in, in this project, my father told me that my grandfather and my great-grandmother were seed guardians as well. I didn't have this information before. Wow. So that was like really shocking for me because I was thinking, <laughs> yeah. wow, you, you don't know, like, I was very passionate about the topic, but I am not an agriculture. I live in an apartment in the city. So uh, <laughs> yeah. I was like, why am I so into this? It was like meant to be. <laughs> yes. like, like, it, this, like through the, the generations, it was like a spiritual calling or yes. something. How wonderful. Yeah, wow. It was amazing. So then I went to my father's town just to understand it and to feel more part, more involved in it. I was... I need this, this feel of connection with the, the earth and, the, and agriculture. But actually, when I went there, everything that my father remembered was already lost. So it was a difficult journey, but it allows me to tell how this loss uh, works. So it is a project that is mainly a multimedia project. There is a video that is told from my father and my own perception. He speaks about his memory and I speak about what I am seeing in the, in the actual moment. And we create this piece. He could draw over some images, that, the things that he remembered. And he had to migrate from Colombia to Ecuador due to the violence in Colombia. So that's something that really marked the process of the town and, and it's a very intimate story, but it's, mm. you can relate to it because it's, it becomes a global story. There's many towns that have has the same or similar processes. 
Yeah, totally. I think the thing for me, um, not knowing those stories and, and watching the film was really quite poignant and very layered and complex. And I think that, what, as you describe, I didn't realise that it was your father's drawings. I think that's a really tactile thing that your father can offer. There's the voice and then there's the pictures and the images of him, but then his drawings as well. And you use the different ways of of visual storytelling really succinctly and beautifully. They they come together really well in a way that it's quite an emotional journey and it feels intimate and it feels like a personal migration story. But I think partly because you're journeying back to his town, but then all of the other aspects of that and even the idea of the journey of a seed and and across generations of having carrying seeds, holding seeds and then moving. But I think the thing that you touched on at the end there about it being a global story is really important because I think, as you say, I mean, obviously across Latin America, this is happening, but I'm sure globally, you know, notions of biodiversity, loss of not just food culture, but just culture in general as well, and manual labor processes, the love of land, the love of of growing and nurturing, I feel like we are losing really quickly and if we're not careful it will be lost and the knowledge will be lost and so I I really I guess I want to thank you for making these stories but also I think allowing us to look at different aspects of our lives and really you know everyday aspects of our lives and making them universal. Do you think all of your work aims to do these kind of things like take very personal specific stories and I guess find a way to share them with the world so that all of us across the globe can connect and maybe reflect about our own situations or or our own lives? Yes, I mean, for me, I am very interested in how global problems, global issues manifest in the most small story or most intimate story. But to be honest, when I finished this piece, I wasn't sure that everyone was going to understand it. I was thinking like, okay, (laughs) Okay. if my family gets it, it's okay for me. Like, okay. (laughs) I don't know if anyone is going to understand this story, but okay. But then I, I started receiving a lot of comments from agricultures around the globe saying to me that they can relate with their own stories and... Uh, how they feel this lost in their own families. That has been really amazing for me that you can connect in other levels. And for me, it's very important because sometimes you feel like a local story is uh, so far away from, it's disconnected, but in reality, the global issues are affecting us in different ways. So... Yeah, that's something that I keep in mind, but it's not something that drives my process. It's just that when I am editing the story, I always keep in mind, is, is there a way that, this, that other people can relate to this and that I can communicate mm. this uh, beside my little bubble? That would be awesome. <laughs> yes. Yeah, well, I feel like the other strand of your work too is very much focused on women photographers, Latin American women. Can you talk a little bit more about that as well, please? Yes, so in 2017, I went to Paraguay and I met with 
uh, this amazing photographer that is called Mayeli Villalba and we connect immediately and start talking about what pisses us off about photography and the media <laughs> <laughs> and we were we were really mad actually <laughs> and how representation was taken in the industry not only how many women photographers were out there uh, working and and being published or uh, presented but also how we were represented in those pictures you know we were totally. really yeah thinking about the what is the image of the latin american woman and it's all, always this mother crying and uh, <laughs> yes and we were very upset about that because there's so many uh, stories and voices and perspective that weren't told and of course we weren't told uh, telling those stories so after spending like a month together we said like okay it's enough of saying things that we don't like let's do something about it so we we said how about creating a collective of latin american women photographers and start telling our own stories so we call photographers that we really liked or we knew and and they were all on board luckily so we created Fantastic. this collective that is ruda colectiva and also i have been involved with many women photographer and processes i think we have worked a lot and it hasn't get much better <laughs> from there but we are still we are still on it and for us the most important thing is that we are women photographers of course but we have a lot of stories to tell and mm. we the, the special thing i think about ruda our collective is that we tell stories from the whole continent and try to make links between countries and that has been very helpful because our countries are always in a lot of very difficult political, uh, economical processes, but understanding those processes from a wider perspective, like when we talk together, like, oh, you know, there's this political issue and and someone can relate on Argentina and tell, yes, we, we mm. crossed that path before. So you can make a lot of links and understand the region better. And that has been something really... I, I mean, it has changed a little bit the, the way we approach uh, topics. And also, of course, talking about a lot about representation, about uh, ethics, about contests, about a lot of things that we haven't had the time to do that, the space to do that. You know, photographers have always been kind of alone and to mm. think with others think with others is very important I think yeah it sounds really fascinating and I think again really important work that all of us definitely as women photographers and from culturally diverse backgrounds really need to push for and and change and I'm sad that it hasn't necessarily shifted that much for you but maybe you know you'll look back in another five years and actually the territory has hopefully turned a little bit or um, and at least you know that you're doing something about it. I think there's something really strong about that and uniting in that. 
I've got one last question. I'd love to hear what you think about the notion of photography as activism. Well, um, it's funny because I don't, I don't consider myself as an activist per se, but I was just speaking about Ruda and thinking that I, I have done many <laughs> things like to <laughs> change things. Um, so I think it's a powerful okay. tool to maybe unite people and make us think about issues in a certain way. But all, what I also like about photography is that it's, it's art as well. So it has this sense of freedom, of capability of connecting with others in a level that is more emotional or sensorial. I don't know if you use mm-hmm. it. Sensorial. Yeah, yeah sensorial. <laughs> yeah. So that can lead to some activism, you know, when you can feel and um, feel certain emotions and connect uh, important issue through art, uh, I think that can lead to action. But I think that put a lot of pressure on photography to be a tool for change is too much, it's too heavy. <laughs> and, and I don't think it's quite good because what I love about art is that it's absolutely Freedom, you know, is a lot of expression that is not necessarily aimed to have a, a meaning or something that you have to take out of it. So if yeah, like an agenda or something like that. Yeah, you don't, it doesn't need to have that. Yeah. Yes. So, but but certainly for me, the the topics I in, I'm interested in are always social for me. That's something that we need to do because in this world specifically is sad, but we artists have the means to connect with more people and to tell things that we want to tell. So we are now, I feel, obligated to, to speak like this. <laughs> but my hope is that in the future, that is something that we can agree as a society and art can be more free. Yes. My next guest is Jemima Wyman. Jemima is a contemporary artist who lives and works in Los Angeles. Wyman's art practice incorporates various mediums, including installation, video, performance, photography and painting. Her most recent artworks utilise these mediums to specifically focus on visually based resistance strategies employed within protest culture and zones of conflict. These works aim to explore the formal and psychological potentiality of camouflage and masking in reference to collective identity. Wyman is represented by Commonwealth and Council, Milani Gallery and Sullivan and Strumpf. Her most recent solo exhibitions include World Cloud at Sullivan and Strumpf in 2023 and A Haze Descends, which was held at Commonwealth and Council in 2022. Recent group exhibitions have been held at the Whitney Museum US, ZKM Germany, MU Artspace Netherlands, Namjoon Pak Art Centre Korea, Elaine L. Jacob Gallery, Wayne State University, Detroit, Carriage Works Sydney, Steve Turner Contemporary, 17th Biennale of Sydney, MUMA in Melbourne, Museum of Contemporary Art Sydney and 21st Century Museum of Art Japan. Selected large-scale commissions include work for AIR at GOMA, 
Other Life Formings at Blackwood Gallery in Canada, Iconography of Revolt at City Gallery, Wellington, New Zealand, The Unexpected Guest, Liverpool Biennial at Fact, and Pattern Bandits at the Children's Art Centre at Goma in Brisbane with an accompanying book, Pattern Power. Wyman completed her Bachelor of Fine Arts in Visual Arts with Honours at the Queensland University of Technology. In 2007, she graduated with a Master of Fine Arts from the California Institute of Arts in Los Angeles. This study was made possible with the generous support of an Anne and Gordon Stamstag scholarship. In 2005, CamLab was formed, a collaboration between Wyman and Anna Mayer. The duo's sculptural, video-based and social practice work has been exhibited internationally as well as extensively in their hometown of Los Angeles at the Museum of Contemporary Art, the Hammer Museum, Armory Centre for the Arts, the Occidental College's Weingart Galleries. Cam Lab has co-taught classes of its own design at California State University, Los Angeles, Art Centre College of Design, Oxbow School of Art, Occidental College and held public workshops at the University of Houston. Thank you so much, Jemima, for joining me today. I wanted to ask you to talk about how you began your interest in art and photography. Well, I guess my interest in art was just always integrated into my home life and everyday life. My mum and dad are both really avid makers and practical people and they're invested in the material world. Uh, Specifically, my mum, she's always making things around the house and making doors into artworks and decoupaging the kitchen and different things. So it was always, yeah, it was always just a part of, yeah, part of my life. There was never separation really between creativity and life. And then because I grew up in North Queensland, there wasn't really a lot of access to museums or contemporary art. So I really didn't get to see contemporary art till I was 15. So it was really, I guess, my interest in art has always been from a maker's perspective and then developed, yeah, over the years. And then, yeah, my relationship with photography, I guess, really developed in my teenage years when my dad gave me a Nikon SLR to to have and play around with on my own. And then also around that time in high school, I ended up working at a photography studio and I learned on the job how to develop black and white film and to print and do enlargements for the studio. And it was mainly like wedding photography and glamour photography (laughs) and studio photography. But yeah, I it was amazing learning that process and yeah and, and even now when I when I think back I was using the scraps from the job in my collages in high school and making photographic collages way back then. I've never really thought about it before, but because you're asking wow. yeah, I guess me to think yeah. about specifically photography, I was like, Oh yeah, I've be, I have it has been there <laughs> since the beginning, so that's really cool. And I think even too, the fact that you started with like decoupage too, you know, this idea of like cutting and, you know, curating at a really kind of hands-on level and like making images from the beginning, you know, like that's always been there and then collecting and seeing, I guess, seeing images in those remnants. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You're bringing a work called Descent Atlas to Photo 2024, and it's going to be part of the outdoor installation program, I believe at Federation Square. 
when I first, uh, I guess, encountered the work online, I guess I kind of was like, oh, it's kind of abstract landscapes. But then I realised that it's obviously large collages of various images of smoke. And then you kind of encounter them even more as you get closer or, you know, as I sort of zoomed in, essentially. I'm really interested to see or hear, I guess, how you are hoping for the work to be encountered, how the work began and, and what it's really speaking to. Yeah, the, the work, all of my work generally develops out of making and other previous bodies of work. And so with all of the smoke works, I started doing them in 2018 and they developed from a body of work where I was looking at protesters and how they were using yellow and black in protest as a form of camouflage. Mm. And the form of camouflage, the scientific name is called aposematism, and it's where high contrast colors are used, yellow and black and white, on animals as a warning device that they're toxic. Oh, okay. Yeah, so if, if a bird was to eat a yellow and black butterfly, it's toxic to their system. So it's almost like a warning sign of what's ahead. Yeah, and wow. so I, I had no idea. Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> so I was interested in these synchronicities between like road signs being yellow and black, protesters wearing yellow and black, and then uh, in the animal world, how yellow and black was a, a warning sign of, of what's ahead and toxicity um, and how all of those mm. things work together. And while I was doing that research and collecting those images, the yellow vest movement were protesting and using a lot of smoke and they were using yellow smoke because it's specifically related to the yellow vests were high visibility and they had to have them in their cars in case they broke down on the freeways in France. It's like a safety precaution. And then also I imagine the yellow smoke flares are also a safety precaution to warn of an accident or warn of something that's ahead. And so they were using these yellow flares, but also the yellow flares become an architecture and a kind of collective body that would hide the protesters and make them appear bigger, their movement appear bigger and take up more visual space. And so I was just like, wow, the smoke is so interesting in a whole range of ways. And then I also remembered Mm. that the French definition of the word camouflage, like the etymology of the word camouflage, yeah. is actually a, a whiff of smoke in the face. And oh, how beautiful. What a really poetic yeah, way. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, and because I had this really long-term interest in camouflage and kind of investigating it in different ways, I was like, oh, the smoke is another form of camouflage. It might not be clothing or a pattern on textiles, but it, it does relate to this history of camouflage and it's kind of like a collective camouflage. Yes. And, yeah. and then the Amazon um, rainforest was also burning and the yellow smoke from that was kind of filling the landscape. And so I started to think about how I could take the smoke from protests and build these kind of smokescapes that were reflective of climate crisis and the kind of smokescapes that we were starting to see from like the Black Summer and, and yeah. different spaces online because a lot of the time we see those horrific images on online as well so they are kind of these um, distilled smokescapes so again it was all these synchronicities um, coming together at the time wow. of making the work um, yeah. and how and it kind of develops from there so I guess I would just say that you know the works in photo 2024 for Descent Atlas there's there's 
two photographs, uh, two works that are from the Hayes series, which are the smokescape works where I take all of the smoke from different protests around the world and cut them out individually and then bring them together to make a kind of smokescape. And then the title of those works lists the type of smoke, the protest where it was used, the country where it was used and the date at which it occurred in terms of the protest and then the colour of the smoke too. Uh, so, so that's the, a very long title. <laughs> yes, they are. And so the titles for the two works for Descent Atlas are about seven, seven pages long. And wow. then the other two works in Descent Atlas are actually the offcuts, the pieces of photograph that fall to the floor when I'm cutting the smoke out. So they're kind of the negative space. Mm, mm. So it reveals, yeah, it reveals the protesters or their signs, or the police, or different debris that has been present at the time of the smoke being released. So they're kind of companion pieces um, in that they reveal the events in different ways and kind of have a really different visual feeling to them. But in a way, they become maps that, yeah, kind of map out dissent and protest that's occurring around the world at different times and in different countries. Yeah, wow, that's really fascinating. I love this idea of them kind of being kind of, I guess, yin and yang of each other, you know, like it's the one thing but at the same time it's looking at two different viewpoints or two different vantage points of this, you know, of all these events but collectively put together. Yeah, there's definitely this play of perspective in the work and that also relates to camouflage because camouflage is really about what it is to see bodies in space and try and locate bodies in space. And so often camouflage is playing with figure and ground dynamics. Sometimes Mm. it's kind of turning a figure into a ground or a ground into a figure. And so, yeah, the the relationship between those two sets of images hopefully will again play with, yeah, the figures becoming almost like a landscape and then the smoke becoming the subject of a landscape. I don't know. There's kind of like illusionistic plays in there (laughs) as well. (laughs) Do you think there's something too about the way they're being presented because they'll be quite large of people, you know, gathering and coming in and out, like in terms of that kind of focal point too to the work and encountering the work? Yeah, definitely. Um, Over, you know, the course of my practice, I've always been really interested in phenomenology and you know what it is to view work and the relationship between seeing and being in terms of encountering the work but also in terms of being a maker in the work and so a part of the smoke works is really that there are different viewing points so from afar they do look like these abstract painterly landscapes Mm. but then when you get up close you can see police barricades you can see protesters throwing molotov cocktails you can see fireworks being released in protests and the smoke from that and there's all these different kind of details that register and I guess as the series gone on I've left more of those details in the work because they are clues to the fact that the smoke is not from wildfires it is from protest and so I realized I had to kind of visually articulate that and make it clear as well as have the evidence in the titles as well. Yeah. No, I think that's a really interesting point because I think there would be a lot of people that wouldn't 
like wouldn't know or or I guess necessarily read the title in that way. So it kind of does, I guess, give us that little jolt when we look at the work to go, oh, hold on, that's a person or that's a barricade or as you say, oh, that's a, you know, a vest. And I think there is something about then recognising ourselves and recognising the act of protest in the work when you are original, like sort of initially looking at those large escapes and then coming in and going, oh, hold on, there's a whole lot more going on here. And I think that's a really, really fantastic aspect um, for the viewer when you encounter the work. Yeah, and I mean, the exciting thing about Photo 2024 for me is that it's the first time that the works will be in a really public space and in Federation Square. And so that is a site of protest and a site of public gathering. And so I'm really excited to think about the work in that context and see how people kind of receive it too, because it's in the embodied space of protest or the site of protest. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. That's, yeah, that'll be really, really interesting to see. Could we talk a bit more about your process? You mentioned before about internet and online images. Is that where you mainly source them? And I guess more broadly, how do you pull together all of the images and decide how to use them? And then also when you decide that, yes, it is going to be a photography project versus, because I know you use many other mediums, you know, a sculptural form or, you know, a painting. So, yeah, if you don't mind kind of talking firstly to how works like Descent Atlas are made, but then, yeah, more broadly in your practice. Yeah, so the works for Descent Atlas come out of, I guess, an archive that I started in 2008 called the Mass Archive, and that's my own personal archive where I've pulled images uh, from online since 2008 of masked protesters or protesters that wear camouflage or pattern fabric. And so that archive has just grown and grown and works develop out of the archive and in response to the archive and in response to collecting images for the archive. So it just depends on what I'm working on at the time. So I'm going to ask a really boring question just to interrupt you for a second. Are you doing like screenshots or is it like downloading images? I'm just, yeah, really technical. Yeah, Um, because I'm fascinated. and how you store <laughs> yeah, yeah. all these images. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a combination. Okay, cool. So, yeah, definitely screenshotting, pulling images directly yeah. off Google Images, off news sites, yeah, screenshotting wow. from hashtags on Instagram, looking through Flickr, downloading and screenshotting, and so just amassing yeah, images. Wow. And so then, <laughs> yeah, yeah so, so then often work, is generated from looking at the images or collecting the images or realising I need more of a certain type of image to make work. I see. And then those images are filed in the archive digitally and then I also print them at different stages for the work. So there's kind of an excess of printed matter stored in clear boxes (laughs) and labelled from various... (laughs) projects yeah Yeah. so that's that's really cool so the archive really evolves as the work evolves but so then I take those digital images print them out hand cut them make the collage and then 
with that collage, I'll sometimes use a digital image of the collage to make, I've made wallpaper, I've made uh, mm. chiffon curtains that act like kind of smoke screens, <laughs> um, or I've made swatch, swatch books that are actually like propaganda textiles that are based from the photographic collages. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, I made a range of different things. So often the collages are like another step in in the process so yeah for photo 2024 the collages are then turned into these larger billboard size images for light boxes Mm. yeah Yeah. okay so it really is quite a material like you know I'm going to go back to what you said you know that making process is so important and really yeah the materiality of it all too even though it starts digitally there's so much in that final, like, I guess, compositing, but, like, you know, the hand-cutting, that must be so labour-intensive, yeah, yeah. right? <laughs> it is, and and sometimes I will touch an image probably at least 15 times or more, wow. one image yeah. in the collage because there's all those different stages of, yeah, collecting, pulling, printing, cutting, taping. Amazing. And moving and, yeah, so it's very intimate and physical and, I think it's also because I'm a really embodied learner. Mm. So for me, I learn so much from the doing. And actually when I'm cutting each singular piece out, I'm seeing more information in the image and learning things more about the image because it's a really close act of looking. So in a way, you know, I was saying earlier about this idea of phenomenology and embodied looking and moving between seeing and being for the viewer but I'm also doing that myself in the practice in terms of the way I'm making and interacting with the work. Yeah, it's totally embodied, really, your practice. It's it's quite... Yeah. But also it's removed from physically, like taking, you know, picking up the old Nikon and taking photos. And I think that's a a, a (laughs) really interesting aspect too, you know, and I think you're still looking, you're still framing, you're still making images. It's just in a way... It's a different kind of tool, I guess, that you're you're utilising. Yeah, yeah, and and it's a different kind of subjectivity mm. too because there's all these different eyes that have seen these different images that are included in the collage. You know, I think about all those different POVs that are registered in a single image yes. as well, and so it's not only like a mapping of world events across this vast distance and vast set of times it's also like across these different bodies in terms of the photographers taking the image and then also the people who are in the protests as well yes yes. um yeah wow so yeah um I read an article about you and your work by Tim Riley Walsh and he states and I quote Wyman's work creates a multi-focal portrait of protest across the earth as communicated through bodies often en masse I think this is a really incredible statement that sums up these these protest works. And I'd love to hear what you think about this description. Yeah, I think Tim's amazing thinker and writer <laughs> and curator and I'm so happy to have his support and kind of language around the practice. And, yeah, I think that statement is uh, really interesting in relation to the work and something I kind of return to in the work is kind of thinking about collective identity and collective image making and collective camouflage too. So that's all uh, embedded embedded in the work 
as well. And yeah, his statement, yeah, is super interesting because it is about this coalescing between a portrait of people lost in smoke and lost in protests, Mm. but then it is about that happening on a large scale, on a worldwide scale as well. Um, I feel like the works are visual maps that are mapping, yeah, these different yeah. different elements um, in terms of, yeah, choices of camouflage and to- choices of devices for visual resistance and for descent. And so the reason I decided to call the series Descent Atlas for Photo 2024 was uh, really because it is a map of descent and a map of protest. So, yeah, the different protests it, it covers is, you know, right wing, left wing, mm. And then sometimes it's really small scale things that people are protesting. And then sometimes it's really large world events, um, like in the lead up to the Ukraine-Russia war or uh, Israel and Palestine and the conflict there. So it's varied in terms of the type of protests and what people are advocating for or going up against. So they're it's all kind of um, smushed in yeah. there together in terms of this large-scale yeah, map. Yeah, and in a really um, beautiful form in a way. I think when I look at your works, I I feel like they are showing me something that we all know but maybe hasn't been put together in that particular way and I think that's why I really liked Tim's quote because it, it feels like it is our imagined kind of collective future. Like they are unsettling, they feel really personal, there seems to be an urgency and I think an, an importance about life in them and, and knowing that protest and dissent and opinion and agency are individual but also collective. And so, yeah, I think that's, that's really fascinating and they are kind of acts of resistance and reflection. I've got one last question. What do you think about the notion of photography as activism? I know obviously your work is doing that, but I guess more broadly, what do you think the role is of photography in activism and its maybe effect or potency in terms of talking to activism? Yeah, I think think photography is a very complex and useful medium in terms of activism. And I think the fact that you know, at its core, it gives us different types of evidence Mm. in terms of how we can relate to the world and our own subjectivity. So sometimes, you know, the evidence is about understanding ourselves in a kind of personal way, but sometimes it is about evidence in terms of justice as well and, you know, our own personhood. And so I think, yeah, photography is an amazing medium to have this evidence at different points in time about who we are and what's happening in the world. And obviously sometimes that evidence can be used in a kind of official justice way, but also it can be used in other ways to teach us things about ourselves. And so I think photography is super important in terms of activism in practical ways. Like I know that photojournalists have gone back into their cameras when they've been shooting protests to see when tear gas was released by police to hold wow. police accountable because they've said that they weren't using tear gas at that point in time yeah. in that space. And so journalists have been called on to be able to prove certain things yeah, like yeah. that. Yeah. Um, but I guess, yeah, I'm also thinking about it in terms of 
a whole spectrum of justice in terms of yeah our own subjectivity and the and the future as well as the literal justices that it can advocate for. My final guest for today's podcast is Carmen Wynant. Carmen is an Associate Professor in the Department of Art, where she is the Roy Wittgenstein Chair of Studio Art and an unaffiliated member of the faculty. Wynant is an affiliated faculty member in Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies and has taught in Ohio prisons through the Ohio Prison Education Exchange Project. She has also served as the Dean of Skowhegan School of Painting and Sculpture from 2013 to 2015. Wynand's work poses a challenge to the ways that we understand women's power, pleasure, labour, healing and liberation to function, querying the aesthetic and political legacy of second wave feminism. Wynand's appropriative installations and artist books grapple with the question for all of its contradictory impulses, the awe of living in a revolutionary moment, a shared preoccupation of the female body as a zone of political strife cognizance of the racial and class-based limitations of the second wave movement, the mine and not mine nature of historical legacy. In using found photographs, Wynand acts upon primary evidence rather than indexical reference. The images incorporated within her work contend directly with the complex notion of socio-political inheritance. Wynand is a 2019 Guggenheim Fellow in Photography she has shown her work in the Museum of Modern Art, New York, Henny Onstad Kustenta, Oslo, Kunsthal Charlottenburg, Copenhagen, Contact Photography Festival in Toronto, Museum of Contemporary Photography, Chicago, ICA Boston, El Museo Universitario Arte Contemporaneo, the Print Center, Philadelphia, MIA, Minneapolis, Sculpture Center, New York, the Wexner Centre for the Arts, Columbus and other sites. Wynand's work is in the collections of the Minneapolis Institute of Art, MoMA and Henny Onstad. It has been written about in The New Yorker, The New York Times, Art Forum, Vogue, Freeze, Aperture Magazine and Art in America. Wynand is the mother of two sons, Carlo and Rafa, with her partner Luke Stetner. They have lived in Columbus since 2014. Hi, Carmen. Thanks so much for making the time to chat today. Thank you for having me on. It's an honour. I thought we'd start by just a little intro in you explaining how you first became a photographer. Sure. Well, first of all, I love that you described me as a photographer. (laughs) Not everybody (laughs) would. I did, in fact, study photography as an undergraduate at UCLA and also through graduate school. And then it was only after graduate school in my sort of mid to late 20s that I started to actually move away, not necessarily from photography, but from making my own pictures. I, it was a s- slow process that I can only sort of retroactively describe this way of taking pictures of other people's pictures and then sort of eventually pushing the camera to the side and recognizing my interest in and sort of obsession with the photographic object, you know, as it sort of predates me or circulates in the world. So I really have to work hard to claim the position of photographer as somebody who who 
very rarely authors my own photographs anymore, although I sort of still live in the world of photography, you know, in sort of its material world and its historical and sort of political world, let's say. Um, that doesn't really answer your question, more sort of drives at um, <laughs> my trajectory of anything like away from being a photographer in the most conventional sense. It's funny you say that. I still think, like, I totally would advocate that you're a photographer. You know, you use images, you think about images, you put images back out in the world. And I think as an artist and as a photographer, we're constantly doing that. We're reading images. We, and, and the work that you're making for me speaks to photography directly. Like it's a critical focus on photography and how we digest it and make meaning from it. Mm. That is what we do as photographers, even though you might not have authored the <laughs> found images, you know? Yeah, no, I appreciate yeah. you saying that. I think I need to hear it and sort of perpetually remind myself of it because <laughs> even when I was making my own pictures, I was never really interested in oh, the sort of like illusionistic capacity of photography, you know, sort of like its magic um, and its seductiveness. Like I was always really interested in its materiality. I was really interested in its sort of potential to circulate. And like you say, you know, as an object to be read. And that didn't necessarily line up with my peers and how they related to making like what I think of as sort of capital P pictures. Um, <laughs> yeah. There's nothing wrong with that. I love you know, photography of all kinds, but, um, yeah, yeah, that's, it's useful for me to hear it and, oh, to not like, you know, exhaust myself sort of running in circles with somebody trying to sort of justify that I belong in this, yeah, totally. you know, uh, yeah. this Just context. claim that spot. Yeah, like, just yeah, go, right. yes. <laughs> <laughs> I think the other thing that's really impactful and maybe it is about that capital P and, maybe we don't have enough time to dissect it, but that idea of the traditional photographer, the history of the kind of male dominance too, and, you know, your subject matter is not that subject matter. It's not, yeah, maybe that capital P photography genre. It's talking about or speaks to women and women's concerns and the perspectives of women. And, you know, we're all still, I think, as women fighting for that voice and fighting for that space as photographers in a different way, through a different lens. And, you know, I think maybe that might be, oh, I wonder whether or not that's part of, of, of the not wanting to claim that space too in that traditional form. Yeah, I think that's a really good read. I feel even as and maybe especially as a lifelong feminist and student of that history that I'm sort of constantly trying to unpack my own inculcated sexism and misogyny, you know, um, in terms of the art world and beyond. And you know, for years, I felt, um, oh, how can I say this? Not quite ashamed of what I was doing in the studio, but maybe not certain that anybody else would be interested in it. You know, these sort of crafty, cutting, you know, like tiny photographs in the studio and making these arrangements, you know, not dissimilar to what I do with my children, not dissimilar to what I did as a teenager. It took me a really long time to unlearn 
the sort of all the sexism that I ingested around that. I'm still unlearning that. So yeah, I think that's slightly different than what you're asking. I mean, that's maybe a little bit more process bound, but it's related to the question too in a more substantive way in that the pictures themselves that I'm cutting, right, have everything to do, like sort of mirror that experience back to me. They have everything to do with that sort of, you know, my own subjective experience, you know, living in my body, being in community with other women, being a mother and so forth. Yeah. And I look, I feel, I think, you know, in similar way, really connected to your work. I can find myself in the images and the experiences, even though some of them are not my own, you know, um, some of them I have experienced as well. Was there a point in your career where you went, actually, this is what I'm on about right now. This is where I want to go in terms of that. Like, yes, you're a lifelong feminist, but, you know, in terms of actually going, this is where the the artwork is going to be situated. Mm. Yes and no. You know, it's so easy to tell like a neat package story (laughs) (laughs) when you tell it backwards. But of course, like it's so much messier as it happens in real time. There's so many sort of failures, productive and otherwise, that happen in the studio. So basically, no is the answer. You know, I was like crawling my way towards recognition, self-recognition, you know, for the sort of moments that you describe. And it was a crawl, you know, as I mentioned, I took photographs for a long time, photographed other people's photographs for a long time, started using found photographs and sort of making very small collages. In fact, the one moment that I had that was close to what you're describing, really a kind of revelatory aha moment where things snapped into focus, which otherwise I feel like is like a myth, a kind of mythic status or experience for (laughs) artists, was when I was in, it's around 2015. I still remember where I was, what studio, and I had this method where I was, I was making these small collages and I had this method of taping everything to the wall at once because I couldn't, I mean, it was just a practical sort of like studio stratagem. I couldn't see everything that I had or that I might want to draw from if it, if it was all tucked away in drawers. And so I would tape it all up to the wall using this blue tape. And then I sort of just pull things down, you know, like as needed or as I wanted to attempt them. And it really happened this way. This is the only time in my life where I've <laughs> come close to what you're describing, which feels like almost cinematic, where I looked up and I, I really felt a kind of vibration. Like I, I could see that whatever was happening on the wall was infinitely more interesting than the sort of quote unquote work. It wasn't just that like it looked better or something, which I, it did actually, but something crystallized for me. It's hard to describe around caring for and about process, right? Like I didn't want to just make work that itself sort of described some kind of creative or political trajectory. Like I wanted the labor to show in the work. I wanted the work to be sort of about and engage with process sort of, you know, as much as describing it. And so I don't know how clearly I'm saying this. It was almost like a metaphysical experience. Yeah, no, that's experience. totally fantastic. Like <laughs> that was a moment. That's so that great. That was a moment, you that, know? Yeah, yeah. And you have to really take them, turned. I think. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It gave me a kind of like inner confidence or permission. Not that people would be into it or want to see the work, but that I had to pursue it. Yeah. But also I think it really speaks to how you present your work now. Like this, it's never just one image. It's the multiplicity of images. It's the, as you said, the materiality of the images. 
but also, as you say, the process is quite evident in the presentation. It is like you're showing us the journey that you've been on or the research that you're doing in your final works. Like it doesn't feel like a split process. Right, that's my hope. And I often find that I'm lagging behind my work, like or my recognition is lagging behind my work in some way. This has happened to me recently, albeit in a different way, where after years of working alone in the studio, sort of post-2015 revelation, you know, sort of cutting and, and sort of working in the expanded fields, let's say, um, you know, in sort of constellatory and, you know, nonlinear processes, often directly on the, you know, sort of taping photographs to look to the wall. I had a kind of, uh, geez, I just said I only had one revelation, but I guess I've had more than one. <laughs> I did have a sort of series of moments where I felt like, you know, my work is so invested in feminist coalition, you know, more and more so in like in being in community and solidarity with one another, like literally more than one body necessarily, you know? And here I was alone in the studio day after day, hour after hour, like it started to feel really not only lonely, but illogical. And I guess this is what I mean by lagging behind my work. I noticed that I had been starting to sort of build these friendships and do this kind of, to call it outreach is a little bit too clinical, but you know, build these networks in my life that were feeding my work and sort of slowly becoming my work. And I guess what I'm trying to say is that sometimes if I can like come up for air, you know, I can recognize my better instincts. And I think about it, maybe describing it as like lagging behind my work is not the, quite the right way to put it. But if I can allow my work to teach me or sort of be in dialogue with the practice, God, it sounds so corny when I put it that way, but that's, uh, that's how I grow as as an artist and, you know, as a citizen. Yeah, maybe it's the teacher in you also, the educator in you, you know, like that kind of language of how we have to kind of digest it. But I think going back to what you said really early, it's really messy, right? You might have the idea, but then you don't necessarily have the process for it yet, or you have the process, but you haven't actually come to the conclusion of what it's about or why you're doing something. So I get what you're saying about lagging, but I think maybe it's all just, you know, minestrone or something like it's all a big soup <laughs> you know and you're working in it and not until you get reflection or a space or an opportunity that you can kind of breathe that you go oh actually I've been doing this for a while sure. now, or that yeah. is the direction you I know think, like I think that's true. I think that's artistic yeah yeah like, I think I, we're like that sorry I cut you off I was just gonna say that I just wrote an essay um, for the Judy Chicago retrospective at the New Museum oh, here amazing. in the States. at Brooklyn? Yeah, uh, yeah okay. no, at Brooklyn. the New Museum oh. Um, oh, okay, in downtown cool. Manhattan. And I mention it because they asked me to write about the birth project, which is, you know, sort of for that obvious reasons. Sense. It's yes. like affinity. Yeah. Uh, I was going to say it's affinity with my work. I, what I mean to say is my affinity with it, <laughs> you know, and considering its long sort of influence on feminists and feminist artists alike. And sorry, this is a long wind up to say that I did a lot of research for that essay. And one of the things that I came across, I read a lot of Chicago's own writing as she's so prolific. And one of the sort of short paragraphs I came across in that book, The Birth Project, she describes her work as a life cycle or in terms of life cycles and positions it as a kind of counter, it's a kind of counter proposition, I guess, to like 
this career spectacle, you know, where you're sort of moving in a vertical line and like these singular accomplishments are being plopped. And it really yeah. struck me as however obvious as so moving and as something that I want to aspire to or maybe am already sort of aspiring to in, in lots of sort of like invisible or unconscious ways, you know, which is to say that like, how I guess this is straightforward enough, but that like it's go, it goes in a circle, it feeds itself, you know, and it's almost like a sentient force um, that strikes me as a really feminist totally. idea. Yeah, and I, I really struggle when people... Like I think back to my PhD and things like that where people go, oh, what's the narrative of the research? What's the narrative? I'm like, there was no narrative. It was so much of my art practice all mushed together and all at the one time. And as you say, life cycle, or I, you know, I, I think, you know, we have rhythms. We have different ways of working at different parts of our lives or, you know, if you've got young children versus no children or like, you know, there's just so many different ways. And I think that is a really beautiful way of actually thinking about it as circular and life cycle and just, but maybe that we have many of them too is the other thought. Totally. I yeah. Yeah. I'm with you. So let's talk about, I feel like it, that's a really good kind of segue into talking about the work, the last safe abortion that's being presented in Melbourne, but also because of its timeliness too. Like it's feels really urgent and really important. And, and I know it's been going on for a little while, the project, but yeah, it would be really great if you could talk about um, maybe the background of that project and and yeah obviously it's potency now I think. Yeah it is unfortunate how just how urgent it is. It's true it's a project that has been underway now for the better part of four years so it actually predates not just the Supreme Court in the United States striking down Roe, but even the leak, which I'm not sure how international this news is, but... It's, I think most of us know, okay. yeah. yeah. Um, which was about six months beforehand. But it doesn't predate, you know, the slow and steady assault on abortion rights and reproductive justice, you know, across the United States. Um, I live in Ohio, which, you know, again, I don't know how much relevance this will have for your listeners, but, you know, is in the heart of the Midwest and is a really vulnerable area for folks who need reproductive care. So (laughs) for those reasons, I had been thinking about this, not as a subject, but really as an experience for a long time. And it's really been the bedrock of my feminism, like of my feminist value and ethics since as long as I can remember. And I've done a fair amount of organizing on the ground, but never sort of quite understood how to translate that into something like art, you know, whatever that is. And I, in fact, I always feared doing that, that like... (laughs) You know, I mean, this this fear doesn't isn't exclusive to me, but like, what happens when you when you flatten something into a subject? You know, something you know around which there's like such an enormous amount of dedication and passion and soul. So I, in any case, I sort of slowly started uh, to, as I often do, sort of without a sense of what direction I'm headed in, I sort of slowly started to collect photographs from clinics. I was able to do that because I have. I've lived in Ohio for 10 years. As I said, I've been on the ground doing this work, Uh, not abortion work, but, you know, abortion advocacy. And um, I realized, like, oh, this clinic has 
five banker's boxes full of photographs. You know, this clinic has three. Like if these two clinics have a lot of photographs, like what else is out there? So sort of slowly my, it's not just that my curiosity is peaked, but I, um, I sort of can start to see a window opening, you know, kind of a window of possibility. So when I was invited to do a solo exhibition at the Minneapolis Institute of Art, which is just a few states over and also in the Midwest, I made this proposition, you know, that I wasn't sure what it would be exactly at the time, but I knew that I wanted to draw from these photographs. And ultimately I ended up making my own photographs as well and incorporating those, my own photographs inside of clinics. And I really want to emphasize that like that is the thrust of the project. You know, when we research abortion or something, or even often if you look it up in like a special collection and an institutional collection or something, it'll be like, you know, protest outside of abortion, abortion clinic firebombed, right? Like it's so sensational and violent and graphic. And again, I don't know what the culture is in Australia, but in the United States, photography is really weaponized by the anti-choice movement um, you know, with like big billboard, you know, or poster size photographs, uh, which are, you know, propaganda photographs of like so-called aborted fetuses. So I really wanted to think about what uh, visuality of ca- abortion care work would look like. Like, how do I countermand those people? <laughs> you know, like, what would it look like to utilize photography if this isn't too grandiose as a tool in the movement was really my thinking from the beginning. And it became clear the more research I did and the more photographs I collected and made myself that that looked like care work. That looked like the really regular work that happens inside of clinics, which are feminist healthcare spaces. You know, it's like, birthday parties for colleagues, sterilizing medical equipment, endless photographs of people, almost all women answering the phone, you know, changing the paper on the, um, you know, on the medical tables, right? Like on the medical beds, excuse me. Like all these kinds of really like totally unphotographic photographs. And (laughs) I collected thousands of them. And in addition to a portion of them being on display at the festival, a larger installation of them will also be opening at the Whitney Biennial in a matter of weeks. Oh, wow. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. yeah. To, after we finish speaking, I'm going to go back into the studio, <laughs> burning <laughs> the midnight oil to get that done. But yes. Yeah, Wow. I think it's a really interesting proposition that you kind of set yourself, you know, but also recognizing the everydayness, the care and the tireless efforts of the people in those clinics and the emotional journey, not just for the people coming in, but for the people there every day. And, you know, in all care and health systems, you know, I think that is the foundation of people in there doing everyday jobs, but with so much other kind of things sitting underneath it. Yeah, wow. Yeah, I, I think, think that's that true, idea. But I, I do want to just emphasize one thing here if I can. I mean, I know that I'm the one who said like this is a regular healthcare space and that's absolutely true, but I do think that there's something like really particular about feminist healthcare spaces. And again, this is one okay. of those things that like retrospectively I poked my head up and I was like, oh, abortion care workers, the project I did before this was on domestic violence advocacy and support care workers. I've done a project on mm-hmm. birth and birth care workers. And it's sort of like, whoa, yes. what do all these things have in common? You know, it's like you have to <laughs> 
kind of wake up every once in a while to your own life. But, you know, it's so interesting to talk to these folks and hear from them. Like, they talk about, yes, this is a medical context and center, et cetera, but this is a feminist workplace, you know, and that means X, Y, and Z. That means, you know, treating the whole body, like whole body care, something they talk about very often, or sometimes they'll call it compassionate care. That means, like, understanding that they're workers are part of the community and that they need support, you know, and they might need loans or they might have a mom who is in jail or kids who are sick, right? Like, um, and sometimes they have childcare spaces. It means, um, you know, non-punitive and, and, you know, as non-hierarchical of spaces as possible. So there is a kind of political consciousness, I think, that runs through, sort of necessarily runs through feminist healthcare context, be it, you know, birth, abortion, domestic violence, which I would also classify as, you know, healthcare in addition to other kinds of care. Yeah, I'm really glad you've pointed that out because I think that sometimes that part can be lost, you know, that I think that actually there's advocacy work in those spaces that is potentially not happening in other healthcare scenarios. And I would probably say in a lot of, like in Australia anyway, kind of main um, healthcare spaces, you know, so like GP clinics, or you might have an individual within it, but not as a organizational kind of structure. So I think that's quite interesting to, to point out and, and differentiate there. I think the other thing I wanted to speak to you about was how the work has kind of also become more than like, you talked about process before, but also you, you turn these projects into as you were saying like big public space kind of installations or books or other really kind of material forms that both speak to that process but also have that public facing quite pointed I think engagement to the issues and the topics that you're talking to can you talk about how that comes about or if you know is it just sort of accidental or is it really purposeful in terms of the work Uh, More of the latter. Um, I mean, it's really important for me to have it be forward-facing, you know, to have the work reach as many people as possible, not only in the context of museums or sort of dedicated art spaces, but I have a practice of making artist books. And one of the reasons that I do that is so they can circulate, you know, they can be made cheaply, they can be purchased cheaply, they can be given as gifts, whatever the case, you know, um, travel like across oceans, like museum installations can't do that so, so easily or cheaply. So yes, I mean, for instance, you know, being able to show this work in the festival in Australia and at the same time have it be in New York, I mean, yeah, I want, as you said earlier, it's urgent, you know, as I was working on this project, like literally clinics I was working with were shuddering around me. Um, just two days ago in the States, we had this ruling come down in the state of Alabama's Supreme Court that ruled that embryos are human, are people, are like fully, you know, like have the same rights as people, you know? And so do I have my doubts about what art can do, like politically and how effective it can be? Absolutely. But my hope is also that the photographs themselves are demonstrative. I mean, they're so tender. The number of, like I was saying, just women who are answering the phone, who are hugging each other, who are like 
in support. That's, that is, it's all there. It's visible. But yeah, I, I do have a sort of a healthy amount of ambivalence, as I said, about, you know, the efficacy of that, but I can't not do it. Let me put it that way. And maybe one last thing I can say about this is that the work is, of course, for everybody, but it is first and foremost for the care workers themselves, like the people, as they would say, who are in the work. I always feel that my projects are most successful when they have reached the audiences of whom they describe in some sense, right? Mm. Like who are not often, I mean, there's no, I don't know what the Venn diagram is for this, but you know, who wouldn't maybe necessarily find themselves in a museum. So an example of this is when I did this project on birth and birth workers in 2018, like the number of birth workers that I heard from or the number of friends who were pregnant or whatever the case who said like, oh, I saw the, your, your book in my midwife's office, you know, or my midwife gave it to me for, you know, on my due date or something like that. That to me feels like something has happened like there that I don't know how it happened always, but something has happened there that's working, that's right. And uh, you know, so it's my hope that that will be the case here, you know, as it comes to abortion care workers. And uh, <laughs> it's always a bit nerve wracking, but I will say because this project was quite extended and I was in contact with so many different clinics and sort of institutions and retired folks who were in the movement and the struggle for a long time, you know, I feel really bolstered and buoyed by those connections going into it. And I know that they're going to show up and bring their friends. And yeah, it makes me want to cry. I feel so held in that way. Out of the Frame is supported by RMIT University Press Play Studio, is produced by Pia Johnson, sound engineering by Alex Edward, music by Steph O'Hara, and graphic design by Brent Lederwitz. <laughs>